and welcome to Soberholic Podcast. This show is designed to address topics that will encourage, equip, and inspire you to explore life's most difficult topics and overcome your biggest challenges. Today, your hosts, Roger and Jason, will share from their own experience how you can find hope and healing in recovery. Welcome to another episode of Soberholics um, in studio with Roger. Um, Yeah, we got another show for you guys. I'm really excited about this show. I'm not going to really spend a lot of time, um, you know, just kind of him hauling around in the beginning because I want to get to our guest that we have. We have a special guest um, this afternoon, and his name is Greg Oliver, and he is the director of Awaken Ministry. And, you know, really excited about this conversation uh, with him and bringing him on. How's it going, Greg? Hey, it's going great, Jason. Roger, good to be with you guys. Man, glad to have you. Uh, just like we were talking about a minute ago before we started the show, it's cool to know that, like, you're right here in our back door here in, in Alabama. And, yeah. you know, I didn't even know you were there until, you know, yeah. like we were talking about, we found out through Facebook that you had this thing going on that we're going to be talking about. And so it's cool to see that, you know, even with, as our listeners that hear you, um, they may have something just like this in their own backyard and not even know it. I mean, so yeah. so many good things that are happening. Uh, just addiction as in a whole is now being talked about more than it has ever been talked about. And yeah, one of the, true. and one of the cool reasons we wanted to bring you on the show to talk about some of that. Yeah, and so why don't you just start us off with a little bit of, of your testimony, Greg, and the struggles and the victories that you've had in your recovery. Sure. Well, thank you, and thanks again for uh, for the invitation. So I've been in recovery from sexual addiction since uh, about January of two, not about since January of two thousand and nine. Um, a little bit about my background. I grew up in the church. I became a Christian when I was about six years old and um, always was very, very deeply involved in the church, just kind of saturated in church and ministry my whole life. Graduated from a Christian high school, uh, went to Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, and uh, just always from, I guess, probably middle school on, knew that I wanted to be in, in vocational ministry. And uh, I was musical, and so I wanted to do, you know, music ministry, um, and and that was kind of the track that I was on. And at the same time, the other part of my life that was going on pretty consistently, but that nobody knew about, was that I, from you know my teenage years, was addicted to masturbation and using pornography whenever I could get it, which thankfully wasn't that often. I'm old enough to where. The porn, the porn I used when I was young was magazines. Yeah. Paperbacks. Um, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm 50 years old, and so there was no internet when I was young. And I thank God for that, because I think if there had been, I'm honestly not sure if I'd still be alive today. And I, I don't say that facetiously. Like, I'm, right. I'm really serious. Um, but, you know, I just, I, th- there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of feeling like I was growing up in a pressure cooker, because... You know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, evangelical culture, uh, an awful lot of the way that you evaluated your worth and your value as a Christian was in the things that you did and things that you didn't do, the list, you know, the two-column list. And um, and so I always felt like I really needed to make sure I was always doing the right thing. And I didn't like the reactions that I got from people when I did the wrong thing. And so 
I tried to do what was good, but then when I, when I messed up, I just started lying about it and trying to make sure nobody found out. Mm. And so just that whole life of, of living in hiding for fear of judgment and rejection, that was just a really you know, big part of my life. And I didn't realize that when you live with that kind of pressure, it's got to release at some point. And when I hit puberty and discovered masturbation, then that was my release hatch. (laughs) And that was, that kind of became what I used every time I felt anything that I didn't like, you know, any negative emotion, any pressure, anxiety, stress. And then, you know, the chemistry took over and, you know, as I got older, it just became something that I, I think my brain became addicted to the, the, the dopamine and the norepinephrine rush and all the things that happen, you know, when you use porn and you sexually act out. And, uh, I think like most people, uh, I naively believed that this problem was going to go away once I got old enough to get married and I had mm-hmm. a good, healthy, legitimate sexual outlet that once I could have sex with my wife then I wouldn't ever need to masturbate or look at porn again. And everybody believed that and nobody's right, you know, right. <laughs> because, because it isn't about sex. It's about, you know, there being some kind of a problem, a wound in my life, and I'm trying to fix it with something that wasn't designed to fix it. And so because it wasn't about sex, no form of sex, no matter how healthy or God honoring it is, is going to be able to fix another kind of problem. So I discovered that after my wife Stacy and I got married and I still went to the same medicine every time I was stressed out and anxious. And now I'm, you know, now I'm feeling doubly guilty and shameful because I thought this was going to be the fix all and it wasn't. And I felt, of course, I can't tell her because she'll take it personally and I don't like that conflict. And by this point now I'm in ministry, so I can't tell the people I work with that I'm using porn Mm. because then I'll get fired. And it's just the secrets just start to compile, man. And it just got worse and worse. And then here comes the internet and it just really got bad fast. And so I'd say from about 96 through probably the next 12, 12 and a half years, it was just a spiral that just got worse and the escalation just got worse and worse. And, um, you know, one at a time just crossing lines that I swore at the beginning I would never cross. And, you know, uh, the last six years of, of my addiction, uh, journey before I got exposed and got into recovery, you know, I, I, crossed that ultimate line that I said I never would, which was the flesh barrier and, you know, having sex outside of my marriage and just out of control. And the whole time I'm in full-time church ministry, just trying to keep those worlds separate. And man, it was just miserable. And, you know, I I knew that it wasn't something that I was going to be able to sustain for my whole life. Uh, I knew at one point it was going to catch up with me and I'm just trying to delay that as much as I can. And it was just a miserable way to live. So finally, um, I, I made a mistake with an email that I sent and I sent it out, um, instead of from my dummy email account, I sent it out from my church email account. Mm. And I'm, I'm convinced that it wasn't just a mistake that I made because I was by that point so good at covering my tracks and keeping those worlds separate. I'm just convinced that it was God stepping in and saying that that's enough. I'm yeah. not going to let you keep you know, destroying yourself. Mm. I really think that he caused me to do it. And I'm grateful for that, even though (laughs) the the immediate aftermath of that was pretty devastating. Um, you know, because everything that I thought made me who I was, I kind of lost for a while, you know, namely ministry and my identity as a worship pastor. Um, thank God I didn't lose my wife and my family. 
Um, that's only by the grace of God. And I, I say that not that God's grace wouldn't have been powerful had I lost them because that's what I deserve. But just that wasn't the story he had for me. And I'm so grateful that my marriage was restored. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of loss, but really having spent most of my life not really knowing what hope feels like, it was kind of a new and a cool thing to realize I didn't have secrets anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wasn't constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. So along with all of the the pain that was going on, there was primarily the the emotion that I was feeling was just joy and and, and hope and freedom. Well, you mentioned that, um, that, you know, you was holding on to like whenever you get to your, you, you have sex with your wife that yeah. you know, that was, it was going to be better. All that would go away. And I, and I'm thinking about like, as you know, I've got an 18 year old son and I'm always trying to talk to him about trying to do the, the right thing, especially with sexual sure. relationships. And, you know, as, as a man, you still have desires and needs and wants, and you're always fighting, combating that. But, um, you know, I, I, I've told him in the past, in the past, that maybe you know, whenever you get married, you know, well, not maybe, but when you get married, this is when you're supposed to do certain things and you know have relationships like that. Um, but did all the pornography that you had viewed previously before your wife did it cloud your judgment of what a relationships or sexual relationship is actually really supposed to look like? Oh, a hundred percent, yes. And and what I had had used mostly before I got married was not so much hardcore porn as it was like hard R rated movies with a lot of sexual content in them. Mm -hmm. Um, because the thing that I really desired was to have like just really hot, like relational sex. I wanted somebody to want me in that way. And so I'd watch these R rated movies where, you know, this guy and girl, they just go at it and everybody's excited and they climax at the same time. And I'm just like, that's how it's going to be. And, and so just that unrealistic picture, even in Hollywood movies of what sex is like, because it's not like that. I mean, so many times a husband and a wife aren't aroused at the same time. There's a whole lot more planning, (laughs) you know, a conversation about sex and there's nothing wrong with that. But I had a totally unrealistic picture in my mind. And so when my desire level was so much greater than that of my wife, I thought that something was wrong and Mm -hmm. I thought something was wrong with her. And I felt like I'd been cheated and I felt entitled. And so when I went back to masturbation and porn, it was kind of like, I saw it as a way to just supplement, you know, what I wasn't getting that I deserved. Mm -hmm. So there was a whole lot of a sense of entitlement that Mm -hmm. came from what I watched because I believed as an immature person that that's how it was supposed to be. And that's what I, that's what I deserved. All right now, did with you uh, starting with the movies, the R-rated movies, things like things like that? Did it ever escalate to the hardcore porn? Did you see that the the cycle continued to get worse? What used to do it oh, didn't do it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, like just. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how much hardcore porn I watched over the years, but that was after we were married. Right. Because my wife and I got married in early 1992. And I didn't really get internet access until probably three, three and a half years later. Um, And so, but as soon as I did, I mean, it just went off the cliff immediately. And I was working at another church in Louisiana. And I would just, I remember days, I would spend half the day alone in my office, just looking at porn for like four hours. Right. Um, You know, at the church when I'm supposed to be getting Mm -hmm. work done. 
So, oh, absolutely. And that's the whole nature of porn. I mean, and especially now it's, you know, I'm talking about mid nineties porn when I was using a dial up modem and sometimes it'd take like a minute and a half for a picture to wow. look. AOL and, crank it up and everybody could hear it. And check tone, man, that was a trigger for me. Yeah. And, but now, I mean, the, the, what young people are growing up using now, it's the whole game has changed. It's about volume, variety, and violence. I mean, that's kind of what I say a lot. The, it, whenever I would use porn when I was younger, that would prompt me to want to experience something real because the porn I was using couldn't compare to the real thing. Well, that's flipped now because real sex and real relationship can't compete with all of the crazy stuff that people are seeing in porn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are growing up conditioned that sex is with anyone and everyone and this many and whenever you want it. And it's really degrading towards women. And it's, she doesn't do what you like. You just choke her. And I mean, it's so, it's just so different from what relational sex in a committed relationship is supposed to look like. But when you start looking at it, when you're eight years old, which is about average for these days, and then you don't get married until you're in your late 20s, which is average in America. You've got porn as your sex ed teacher for two decades mm-hmm. teaching you that this is what it's supposed to be like. And it's no wonder that sexual violence is on the rise wow. and why people are delaying getting married and why, why relationships are breaking up. I, I can remember because yeah, I'm 42, so I, I can relate with a lot of what you're saying here. And yeah. I, um, there was no Internet when I when I first saw porn for the first time. Then those days you had to go to a convenience store or, you know, a gas station Mm -hmm. and you would buy from behind the counter. And I remember being terrified, like going in to buy the first porn magazine you ever bought because, you know, they would give it to me and they would put it in a bag. And then I was afraid that maybe if I turned around, somebody I knew was going to be standing there. And so today things are much different because now you can do it in the secret of a bedroom. Heck, even like you're talking about, you can do it in your church office. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people are exposed to it who weren't even looking for it. Exactly. You know, you had to, I mean, I worked hard to find porn when I was young, but now, I mean, so many people that I'm meeting now, they're like, Oh, my first exposure was it just popped up. Cause I misspelled some website that I was typing or a friend turned his phone around and showed me this hardcore. And it's like something happened in my brain. And I was like almost instantly fascinated and hooked. And so, you know, 70% of young people who say that they've used porn say that they saw it when they weren't looking for it. Wow. 70%. Hmm. And so it's, it's completely different than it was when I was young. Well, it sounds like, I mean, many of the things that I've went through with drug addiction, you have experienced with sexual addiction, just like the cycle of things getting worse, clouding your judgment on different things. Um, yeah. Even like you talk about the different email addresses, the, just the manipulation that goes along with it. Yeah. The two addictions sound similar, very similar. But you, you mentioned that, you know, these things are, are things that you did in the past. You, you got sober sometime or another. Uh, talk mm-hmm. to us about what that looks like. You know, how, how did you get sober? What, what changed for you? That's a great question. So one of the things that, that is important to understand about sexual addiction is that it is first and foremost, and clinically speaking, it's an intimacy disorder. And when I say that, I mean, it's not about sex. It's about people who are using sex to try to accomplish what they're afraid to do in real intimate relationships. You know, intimacy is vulnerability. Intimacy is letting people know what's really behind the mask. It's kind of opening myself up and taking the risk of letting you really know me. 
And I'm so scared to do that, right? Because what if you don't like what you see? And so rather than take the risk of vulnerability, then I'll just take something that feels like a substitute. Because when I look at porn and masturbate, that simulates that feeling of intimacy. And when I, you know, let's say that part of my acting out involves going to hire a prostituted woman, then I'm having sex with her and that feels connected. But I don't know that person. And there's no relationship there. So it's just a false sense of intimacy. And so it doesn't satisfy. And so when I got caught, it was at a point where, you know, they, there's a, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, about rock bottom and, you know, you've hit rock bottom when you quit digging. <laughs> and, right. you know, I, I was, I was so ready for change that by the time I got caught, I felt like I had been drawn back in a slingshot and just, <laughs> here we go into recovery. And I was surrendered. I was at a place of somebody tell me what to do and I will do it because I'm so tired of living like this. I wanted to die. Um, I, I, I literally prayed sometimes that God would just take my life. And, and so now that it was out, I was like, I felt like I was on rocket fuel just propelling me forward. And so initially, just the, the freedom I felt from not hiding anymore really took a lot of the temptation away. Now, that didn't last because, you know, there was a lot of hijacking that had taken place in my brain. And so after the newness of recovery wore off, some of those triggers and temptations came back. But by that point, I had gotten myself into therapy so that I could understand a lot of the trauma and the experiences in my life that had fueled it. I came to understand, like, if I stay connected and if I'm in a relationship and I'm being honest, and open and willing about, you know, what I'm going through, then I don't feel that sense of isolation. I don't feel alone. And so where before acting out was just a foregone conclusion, I'd be sitting at my desk sometimes hours before acting out. But in my mind, it's already happened. Like there's no stopping it. Well, that wasn't true anymore because now I knew there was another option because I had come out of hiding. Well, I hadn't come out of hiding. I've been forced out of hiding. And now that there are people in my life that I knew that no matter what I told them, they were going to love me and not reject me, man, that was the experience that I had been looking for when I was chasing all that porn. And, and the person that I experienced that from more than anybody was my wife, which is just crazy considering Mm. all the betrayal that she had to, to heal from and all that I had put her through that she was willing to give me that grace and still desire to be there for me and to connect with me and to forgive me. Like that was, we were married 17 years when all this stuff hit the fan. It Mm -hmm. actually hit two days after our 17th anniversary. So happy anniversary, honey, right? Yeah, Um, wow. But but we came to realize that in 17 years of marriage, we had never actually experienced true intimacy. We were great friends. We got along. We had pretty good sex, but we never were intimate because we both had things that we were afraid to really be vulnerable with each other about. And, uh, you know, mine made sense to me, but some of the things she got in touch with, with, uh, uh, attached to like fear and control and codependency, she really embraced her own recovery journey, which was so huge for me to see. It would have been so easy for her to just pin it all on me. If, yeah. if, if he gets healthy, then we'll be fine. No, she realized that she had her own stuff that she needed to do as well, which was just huge to see. So sobriety, continuing sobriety for me has been a result of, not letting up, staying in the program. Like I've been going to meetings uh, for 
January will be 12 years and I plan on going to meetings for the rest of my life. Now, do I feel like I daily need them at the same way I did in the first year? Not most days because most days I don't feel like I'm anywhere near the cliff. But I know that if I stop working the program, it's going to take me no time to get back to the edge of the cliff because that's, that's the nature of addiction because it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, right? And plus, we've got a spiritual enemy that wants to use that to, you know, to, to knock us off track. And so I'm going to continue working my program. I'm going to continue, uh, you know, surrounding myself with people that are willing to be authentic and, and ask me to be authentic and, that's been one of the, one of the things. And, and plus, you know, serving other people too. And through this ministry, uh, in a lot of ways, serving has helped keep me sober. So you mentioned this ministry, um, awakening is the correct. Awaken. Name. Awaken. Awaken. Okay. Mm-hmm. I almost got it. I, awakening I is I don't movie. have the computer in front of yeah. me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, tell us about this. This, this just started, to, was it five years ago? You just told me this? five years ago. That's right. Yeah. So, when I first started recovery, my biggest desire was I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kick the crap out of this recovery. I'm going to get recovered so impressively that when I get back into church ministry, everybody's just going to say, wow, he's for real, right? He's the I mean, real deal. <laughs> my codependency was like going through the roof because I wanted everybody to see that I was legit. Well, over time I saw how unhealthy that was and how I had, I had just, put my whole identity on being in pastoral ministry and being a worship pastor. And so slowly and gradually God replaced that desire with a desire to just walk with other people who had been through this, right? You know, second Corinthians one, I refers to that as comforting others with the comfort that you've received from God. What I've been through, I want God to use that to help you. And, um, we just had so many chances to do that kind of casually informally that eventually that turned into a ministry that we formed a nonprofit. And, um, we, we have, you know, support groups, we do, uh, coaching, we have intensives, we work with churches to help ministry leaders better understand sexual addiction so that when they're shepherding people going through this, they are, you know, doing their helping and they're not unintentionally doing more harm. Those are the areas that we really feel like we can best help, you know, other people and help the body of Christ. But yeah, we started that five years ago and um, just kind of stepped out asking God to, to sustain us through support. And it was pretty lean, pretty tough for the first few years. We had to take side jobs while we were doing it, which was okay. Um, but God's been really faithful. And now, you know, the, the ministry is healthy and we've got uh, multiple support group meetings here in Birmingham. We've got meetings in Coleman. We just started a men's meeting up in Nashville uh, we have virtual meetings and we've, we've got opportunities for men and for women who struggle with unwanted sexual behavior and for women who are needing, you know, trauma support because they're the partners of a male sex addict. So we kind of have, have opportunities wherever you fall in this to get support and, uh, in multiple places, both in person and virtually. So um, it sounds like you have both of those options, but I've got to ask this because we've talked about this a lot on the for the past few months here on the program. But with mm-hmm. it being coronavirus and everything, are y'all still meeting in person, or is it all virtual um, right no, now? We, while we were under lockdown, you know, back in the spring, we went to all virtual, and um, as soon as the 
the stay at home turned into safer at home and we were allowed to meet, we began to resume in-person meetings and, you know, asking people to be sensitive to one another and to wear a mask. And so, yeah, we re-engaged with our live meetings, but it's really guys just been probably in the last three or four weeks that we're feeling like a lot of the people that were coming before, like have come back. We were pretty lean as far as the people who were in the room and actually our virtual meetings, became our best attended ones. And it was so cool the way that God works. I mean, even in the midst of a pandemic, I mean, people from all over the country started to find us because Mm -hmm. they were looking for some kind of recovery support and they just would do Google searches. And apparently, uh, apparently our SEO is decent because people (laughs) would find us. And, uh, you know, I, I think last week at our virtual meeting, we had somebody in New York state, Washington state, Georgia, Illinois, Tennessee, uh, I'm trying to think if there's somewhere else, but just all over the country. We've even had somebody from Australia to, to join our, our virtual meeting. And so, you know, that's something that even after uh, the coronavirus pandemic is over, we're going to continue to offer a, a virtual format because there are some people that that's all they have. There's nothing in their area yet. Right. And um, so, yeah, it, that's just a, a real need that, that uh, thankfully – God is using technology and, and what we do to be able to meet in some people's lives. That's awesome because um, the the in-person has been tough on the recovery community as a whole, not yeah. having that. I've seen that. And so t- virtual, you know, definitely has, it had, has had its place there and has worked in some areas. But I was curious how that worked in the with sexual addiction because many of my friends who have struggled or are still struggle with sexual addiction, they've actually put safeguards on themselves so that literally like yeah. they're, they don't have Internet. And so like right. I've talked to them and they don't have – you can come on our Zoom meetings. They're like, we don't do Internet you know, because it's a trigger for them. Well, the cool thing about Zoom is even if somebody has locked down the internet for a time being or permanently, whatever it is, the Zoom meeting that we have has a, a call-in phone number option. Oh, yeah. And so some people will do that, and they'll just listen on their phone, and they won't be able to see everybody, but they can hear and they can talk and they can participate that way. So, you know, it's kind of like there's always a, a workaround, um, <laughs> you know, what the big book says, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it. Um, the technology will sometimes help us to do that and to figure out a a workaround. And thankfully with Zoom, which we use, um, if they can't join via the Internet, they can join uh, through a phone call. Well, that's really cool because like um, the other program I was talking about earlier, Celebrate Recovery, when you and I was talking um, mm-hmm. one of the things that they did, they went with the Zoom meeting, but they w- they would only allow videos. They wouldn't allow anyone to dial in because they that's were right. afraid for the confidentiality and anonymity portion of it could be flawed. And that's a very, yeah, and that's a very real uh, issue because you don't want people who are kind of infiltrating your meetings who don't really need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want spies. You don't want plants. And thankfully, we're still small enough to where we have it set up to where in order to access our meeting, you've got to reach out and, and make contact with us before you get that information. Ah, so um, we, don't put on our, we don't put on our website how to connect to the meeting. We say how to connect to us, oh, and then yeah. we do a little bit of screening you know, before we give that information out. 
Ah, so, yeah, so like you said, there's a way around anything, and that makes good sense, and it opens the opportunities up for other people who, who need a meeting that just can't go any other option. So That's um, right. That's really good for Roger, you guys. There's so many things that we've had to think through that we never thought we would have to think through at the beginning of this, but it's like necessity is the mother of invention, right? Mm-hmm. And and so we've learned how to how to pivot and do a lot of things that we never used to do, and it's cool because I think it's made us better. And I think it's, it's made us, it's put us in a position where we can take what we were already doing and make it accessible to more people who need it. I understand. Well, it sounds like y'all are doing a lot of cool stuff um, over there. How many meetings a week are y'all doing right now? So on Mondays, we've got a meeting, a virtual meeting for women who struggle. Uh, and in Coleman, we've got a men's and a women's meeting, men's recovery meeting and women's uh, betrayal trauma. So it's like a spouse's meeting. So that's, there's three on Monday, Tuesdays, we have a, uh, a male addicts and a female spouses meeting in North Shelby County. Wednesday, we have our men's virtual meeting. Thursday, we have our spouses virtual meeting. And then on Tuesday nights is when we have our Nashville men's meeting. So we've got about seven meetings going right now. Wow. Uh, oh, we've also got a Monday morning zoom for men. Some, a, a few of the guys like to kind of start out their week with a meeting. And so we've got, probably five or six guys who usually get on uh, early on Monday mornings. Like I'm thinking of about three guys right now that I know would come and do this. Yeah. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. So <laughs> send them our way. Yeah. Awesome. We'd love to, we'd love to meet them and, and have them, you know, have this be a part of their community. Cause you know, that's the whole thing. You were talking about how tough it is not being able to do in person in all contexts. And that just really reinforces one of the worst things about addiction, which is isolation. And so anytime we can give people an option that, that brings them out of isolation, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's, that is incredible that you guys are doing that. And I, I, I love hearing stories of how, you know, God takes somebody's mess and turns it into a message and how he rescued you out of that, that pit of destruction that you had gotten yourself in for the purpose of of helping advance his kingdom and helping other people who are in that same um, that same struggle that they're dealing with. That's incredible. Well, Greg, yeah. it has been uh, awesome having you on the show, and we're gonna that brings us to our final four, which is our final four questions that we always ask uh, any guest of the show. And so we're gonna. Yep. Str- I sent these to you ahead of time. I actually did it, Roger. I actually sent them to him. That's kind of our inside joke. Anytime he lines up a speaker, he forgets forget to give them. And so, I mean, some of those are pretty easy to answer, yeah. but there's a couple that really take some thinking. Yeah. So, well, not put me in a position where I have to go. So here we go. Go ahead. Play, but it won't. All right. So here we go. Final four questions. Number one: Can you name a book other than the Bible, movie, or podcast? that has changed the way you look at an area of your life. Yes. Um, there's a podcast called the place we find ourselves. Um, and, uh, it's put on by a therapist named Adam young and it is phenomenal. It's, uh, uh, every two weeks an episode comes out and it talks about how story and trauma feed into, um, a lot of the things that we struggle with. And when we're able to tell our stories and, and lean in for understanding, we can really find healing. Um, Adam Young is a, a trauma-trained therapist in Colorado, and it is just remarkable. Uh, so many good things that are aha moments, especially for people in addiction. Wow. The place we find place, ourselves. Place, yeah. Okay. 
And then number two, if you had a blank billboard to share advice with the world, what phrase would you put on it? Uh, yeah, the phrase I would put on it is ask for help. Mm. Um, because that's one of the, the, that's the number one thing that keeps people lost in addiction is fear and isolating. And, uh, I believe that the biggest solution begins to happen when we ask for help and we realize we're not supposed to be able to do this on our own. Yeah. That's, that's so much power in that. I'm still a believer that pride's the reason that we just don't ask for help. That's it. Oh, pride, yeah. fear, right? pride and fear. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Number three, when talking about the 12 steps, what is your favorite step? That was tough for me to land on because I like a lot of different things about the steps, um, different ones for different reasons. But if I had to pick one, I think I'd say step 10. Um, because if a person in recovery makes it all the way through through step nine and the, the heavy-duty lifting work that they've done to get to that point, it's so cool to realize that you don't have to do the work to that that intensity every single day. You just have to do it a little bit every day. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what in is to me. It's where, you know, the first nine steps were moving into the house that hadn't been lived in in 50 years. And you got this layer of dirt all over everything. It takes you forever to clean it. Well, once you've cleaned it, it doesn't take nearly as long to keep it clean as mm. it took to get it. And that's what I love about step 10 is if I will keep working it every single day, it just, it, it, it's, it's that quick, inventory through, Hey, am I, am I ready to promptly admit when I'm doing wrong or when I, you know, when something's off and it just never lets it build. So that's, I, I, that's a really probably a favorite one of mine. That's a great illustration. I, know. I was sitting there thinking, I've never heard that yeah. illustration. Yeah, the problem is I forget to clean underneath my couch a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's that one closet. Yeah. So well, clean up couch when you go through the steps the second time yeah, right? that's it yeah yeah i've always said a bad 10 step always brings a good four step back around yeah. So. yeah and then the last question is how can people reach you um they can go to our website which is awakenrecovery.com a-w-a-k-e-n-r-e-c-o-v-e-r-y awakenrecovery.com um my email address is just my name g-r-e-g at awakenrecovery.com or if they go to the website there's a contact form that'll send us a message that's the best way to get in touch with us and we're really good about following up quickly um so if anybody has questions or needs to get information on how to connect for our meetings or for coaching or wants to know when we're offering our recovery intensives just go through the website that's the best way to do it and if they wanted to get to one of your meetings, because you mentioned that you, before you sent out that link, you'd like to talk to them. Is that the best way to get a mm-hmm. hold of you is going through that? Yes. They can go to the site, fill out a form, and just there's a, a, a checkbox to say what they're interested in. And one of those options is info on a recovery meeting. And then there's a place where they can make their comments. And so it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Once you get to the site, if you hit contact, it'll take you right to the form that will uh, – allow you to put in what's going on it comes directly to my inbox and i i reply to all of them and then um i'm just trying to clear this up because i know some listeners are probably listening to this but if once they go through that first initial step of like kind of getting to know you um and know that, mm-hmm. that they are struggling you know and, and try to safeguard the the meeting as a whole um the next meetings will they just automatically get a code i mean they don't have to meet with you every week to get that code that's- that's correct. Yeah. Once, once we've uh, connected, 
and I know that this is somebody who's legitimately, or I trust that this is somebody who's legitimately seeking help, then I'll give them access and I'll, you know, let them know where the meeting locations are if they're local or give them the connection uh, for Zoom if they're not local. And uh, yeah, we, once they're in, then they are, you know, expected to adhere by the same safety guidelines that we have that apply to everybody. Um, and we re- reiterate those every week. Um, we, re- we maintain confidentiality. What's said in the meeting stays in the meeting. Um, we don't cross talk or fix each other, you know, and we, um, we expect people to adhere to that. And if they don't, we'll have a conversation because we've got to, you know, we've got to protect the sanctity and the safety of the meetings. And thankfully, you know what, we've really never had much of a problem with that. Um, there've been a couple of conversations I've had to have people who slipped up and shared something outside of the meeting that they shouldn't have. And it's never happened twice, you know, because people usually do it and they didn't mean anything by it, you know. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's the way that it works. Awesome. All right. Well, we thank you for coming on and sharing um, your story and what you're doing. Um, it's really exciting to hear about more things that are happening, especially in our area. And then also that you're reaching, you know, the national level now, be able to do this wherever. So it's just really yeah. cool to hear about those things and how God's blessing you and your ministry. So we just it's want cool to, thank to be you. in it too because this is not this is a lot more than we could have come up with, and and it's it's God and and we just you know kind of go along for the ride and, and see what He does. But thank you guys for giving me an opportunity to talk about it today. Awesome, we appreciate it. Well, Jason, that brings us to the end of another show. Yep. And so um, until next time, I'm Roger. I'm Jason. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to Soberholic with Roger and Jason. If you like the show and want to know more, check out SoberholicPodcast.com. Please remember to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week, Soberholics.